And if you have a Bible, would you grab it and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's in the New Testament towards the right. It's before Revelation. It's right after 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we're just going to look at one verse in there. This is the final week of our series called Prepared with an Answer. Our hope was through this series that we could equip a body of believers to understand the what, why, who, how, when, and today where of evangelism. The where of explaining to others how good God is to be prepared with an answer when asked. And I want to start with just one particular verse that Paul the Apostle writes to the young pastor Timothy in the church of Ephesus. And he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 is where we're going to start. We should have a slide up there. Preach the word. If you underline in your Bible, make sure you underline word. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So what do we proclaim? What do we give away? What do we tell others about when we are preaching? We preach the word. Not just different verses, especially out of context, but really the word of God, the Bible, the work and the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure how everyone here views the word of God or how you see the Bible in particular. But we believe that the word of God, we believe that this book is absolute truth. And if that offends you, buckle up. There is no other book or writings that supersedes the very words of God. And this past week, I was meeting with a college student. While I was meeting with this college student at Pete's, and that matters, all of a sudden, a pastor friend walked in with another pastor, and they sat down, like I've said, Pete's is holier than Starbucks, and we're sitting in this Pete's, and I'm meeting with this college student, and then as we're talking, our time was done, and he left, and all of a sudden, the pastor that I knew a little bit better walks over to my table, he sits down, and we start to have a conversation. And this pastor friend had been working at another church, and his father is a lead pastor and has been the lead pastor at a different church for over 30 years. And my friend had left the church to go lead worship at another church. And over some time, it turned out that he then was going to go back to his father's church. And so he, was, he went back to his father's church this past Sunday, and his father has been preaching faithfully the word of God for 30 years. And my friend, when he went back, he listened to his dad preach this past Sunday, and this was my friend talking about his father. He said, it was the worst sermon I've ever heard my dad preach in the 30 years that I've heard him preach. I was like, oh, wow, that sucks. That's terrible. And he's like, well, in my dad's defense, he had a really hard week. He had a bunch of extra meetings, his time that he was prepared to share with others or to uh, create the sermon, to do the study, to prepare, all of a sudden got hijacked because someone in the family had to go to the hospital, and so they went to the hospital, and everything, unfortunately, was, was messing up his preparation time. And so as my friend was telling me this, he said, but I also have a very close relationship with my dad. So I went to my dad and I rebuked him, if you will. I said, what'd you say? And he said, well, I walked up to him and I said, dad, you're just not that interesting. 
you're just not that interesting, Dad. You've been preaching here faithfully for 30 years, and as you've been preaching for 30 years, all you really do is you just come and you open up the Word of God and you explain what it says. And that's what people appreciate. They don't appreciate your charisma because you don't have much. They don't, and this is a son talking to his father. They don't appreciate you trying to go off on tangents. They just want you to open the word of God and explain what it says. Dad, you're just not that interesting. (sighs) And I want, especially if you're in this place and you consider yourself a teacher or you want to be a teacher of the word of God, I want you to understand that the power is not in your charisma. It's in the word of God. It's where it comes from. That's what we proclaim. That's what we teach because the power is in the word. And this is why Paul tells this young pastor, Timothy, to preach the word. And then he goes on. He says, be prepared or be ready. Be steadfast in season and out of season because the power is not in yours or my wisdom, but it is in the very words of God. So turn with me to Acts chapter 17. This is where we're going to do most of our study today. Acts chapter 17. As we see Paul the Apostle being prepared, being ready, no matter what context he's in, in season or out of season, he is ready to make much of Jesus. Acts chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 16. We have it up here on the screen as well. Paul, the apostle, we've talked a lot about him. If you're new to this, Paul was a guy who was against Christianity. He met Jesus alive after Jesus had died and risen from the dead. And Paul didn't just stop persecuting Christians. He joined them. And he wrote much of the New Testament. And so here's what it says in the book of Acts written by Luke, who followed Paul for quite, quite some time. And he writes these words about an altercation that Paul had. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, that's in Greece, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. See, Paul had been traveling with other apostles, these men who had been preaching the gospel, been telling others about what Jesus had accomplished as he lived a perfect life. He died a death even though he never committed sin, and he physically rose from the dead. And these apostles, including Paul, were telling others about this, and everywhere they went, one of two things happened. Either a revival broke out and people came to Christ, or a riot started. And in some cases, it was both. So Paul traveled into possibly the most important city in the world in this time, or at least in the past few centuries. And instead of being blown away by the culture, instead of being blown away by the art and the articulate construction of buildings, he knew right away that this city was full of idols. What is wrong with idols? You may ask. We watched a show for many seasons called American Idol. What is wrong with idols? I'm going to tell you three things that idolatry does. Here we go. Idolatry seeks to take glory from God. Idolatry seeks to take glory from God. If you put the glory or you start to give praise, if you will, to something that was created, it is being taken away from the creator. Idolatry wants wants credit for things That should point us to Jesus. Idolatry wants credit for things that should point us to Jesus. And idolatry makes something that is good into a God. You guys picking up what I'm putting down? Because idolatry is so subtle. You ever notice that? 
I can start to make something that is a good thing a God thing when it's not God. So I want you to think about, some of you walked over here, some of you drove over here, and I want you to think about just in your trip over to this church building today, how much idolatry did you pass? You probably weren't looking for it just like me, and I knew what I was about to preach on. And the thing is, idolatry is subtle, and yet Paul had this perspective that wherever he went, he wanted to point glory to Jesus. He wanted to make it about Jesus. And when he saw idolatry and he saw things that were going to take praise away from his God, it distressed him, Acts 17 says. And Paul had this perspective because he was focused on pointing people to Jesus. And idolatry, hear me, will numb this need in us. Idolatry will numb us from the fact that people need to know Jesus. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day. That's like Pete's, just so you guys know. It, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. Paul responded. He made valid points within the culture and the parameters that those in Athens could understand. He related with those that he came in contact with. Wherever you are, there you are to serve Jesus. Wherever you are, there you are to serve Jesus. If you've found Christ, if you've made a commitment to follow him, wherever you are, there you are to serve Jesus. So if you're at work, or you're at school, or you're at a restaurant, or you're talking to your neighbor, guess what? You are a minister of reconciliation. And that's what this series has been about, is to prepare you with an answer when asked. And wherever you go, you have the opportunity to build relationships, to build a rapport, and be someone who brings the truth of the gospel to those around you. Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, excuse me, began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Uh, specifically, what they meant was, what is this seed picker trying to say? This is a diss. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. If you underline in your Bible, underline the resurrection. I want you, for just a moment, if you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ today, I want you to think about what you believe. It seems kind of crazy, if you think about it. You believe in a man who lived a perfect life, but even before that, he was born to a virgin. Even before that, he created everything. And there was this God who decided to take on flesh and walk among us. And he lived a perfect life. And even though he lived a perfect life, he got murdered for living this perfect life and claiming that he was God. And on the third day, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, and he showed himself to over 500 people over 40 days. He ascended to heaven, and one day he's coming back on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. That sounds crazy. We start to think about it. And yet, this is what we believe from Scripture. So if you start to think about your belief system, it does seem kind of far-fetched from a surface level. But it is not just the message of the cross, but the message of the resurrection that is compelling. See what I did there? Compelling? Okay. Verse 19. Then they took him... 
Paul, and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. What a glorious opportunity, guys. You got to think about this. All of a sudden, Paul is preaching. He's going to the marketplace, and they're like, no, 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 no. Come tell all the most important thinkers in the city. Come tell all of us. We're going to give you a stage. We're going to give you a platform, and we want you to tell us about this philosophy that you've been telling others about. I think a lot of times we look at the, the, this council, if you will, of Areopagus, we think of like a city, a, uh, a city council meeting. And that's not necessarily wrong, but it was also known as a court. And not necessarily a court like we know in our judicial system. If you've ever been to court, you know what I'm talking about. But this is a place where people who are bringing in new philosophies would walk in, they would come in, and they'd be asked about their philosophy, and there would be people there that not only were great philosophers, but they would look at things through logic, and they would start to question the things that these people believed. So Paul is about to be asked about this new teaching that he was bringing. To be honest, it wasn't really a new teaching at all, but it was the continuation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And the Messiah that was written about for thousands of years. Do you understand that Christianity isn't a new thing? It is a continuation of an old thing because God makes all things new. And he brings in Jesus, and all of a sudden, Jesus is the one that had been talked about from Genesis to Habakkuk to Zechariah, all of it. And so you see God gives us these ordained opportunities every once in a while. And far too often, I think you and I, I, I think we ask God for opportunities, but we ask God for opportunities half-heartedly, don't we? Please, Lord, give me a chance to share you. And there's a hundred people right in front of us. They're talking to us. They're building relationships. We're building relationships with them. But Lord, if only you would send me someone to talk to. Verse 20. You talking to Paul, are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Verse 21, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Does this sound familiar to any of us? Our culture in 2018, especially in the Bay Area, wants to discuss different technologies, philosophies, and let's be honest, they even want to talk about spiritual matters. But for many, the assumption is that you can't really know God. You can know about mysticism, if you will. You can know about New Age things. But, and even though there may be a higher power that created everything, most people don't think you can know God personally and intimately. If only God revealed himself. May, if only God walked among us and taught of the kingdom of God, and left us the narrative of his past, and his present, and his future, and our past, and our present, and our future, if only God were to do that. Verse 22, that was sarcasm. For any of you that didn't catch that, because it's right here. Okay, that's fine. Second service will get it. That's fine. 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Verse 23, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. 
So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. It feels a little like Paul's doing kind of an encouragement, rebuke, encouragement sandwich, okay? Just so you guys know. Like, this is the thing. And he starts with this bit of encouragement. You all look very religious. Now, in our context, that would feel a little like a diss or a slight. But in this culture, they probably receive this as a compliment, as being religious and pious was considered the point to many people. And because of that, they were very inclusive to an assortment of gods, or really idols, because they figured quantity or strength was better than quality. And that always makes me go back to a quote that I've used before. Tim Keller said it in multiple of his books. He's a preacher. He was a preacher on the East Coast. He's running a seminary now. He said it this way. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. It's not the strength of your faith. It is the object of your faith. In fact, in his book, he continues and he says, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch if you're falling off a cliff. You guys get that? So you don't need to have a ton of strong faith in something that really will not hold you. You just need to have faith in something that is guaranteed to hold you, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul was commenting, or commentating, if you will, on the fact that they had different statues. These statues were created for a plethora of gods throughout the city. And not only ones that people knew about, but in their thinking, they didn't want to offend a God if they forgot about him, so they made one to the unknown God. They created a statue for the unknown God. That's not only religious, that's mystical. So because of this, Paul jumped on the opportunity to explain something that they just did not understand. Too often in evangelism, in sharing our faith, telling others about Christ, we not only attempt to answer questions that no one's asked, which I think we've beat that dead horse every week, but we also attempt to educate people in subjects that are far past their current understanding. Do you know what I'm talking about? Often we forget the message of the gospel and wanting people to follow Jesus, and we want to convert people to seminary students. Can we just be honest about that? We want to convert people to become a Calvinist or a philosopher rather than a devoted follower of Jesus. Do you know how much Matthew knew when Jesus asked him to come follow him? Not much. And yet he started to follow Jesus. And Paul's main objective, which I believe, believe ours should be as well, is if, and I use the word if, if we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, then we ought to introduce people to God because we ourselves know God. If you ever try to introduce someone to someone you didn't actually know, it doesn't really work and it's pretty awkward. And that there are people from every generation and background around us today in this area. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything I've commanded, and surely I'm with you always till the very end of the age. We always think the nations means we have to go overseas, but God brought the nations here. And so there are different nations, there are different generations that need to know about eternal life. But I think we've misunderstood what eternal life means. And I'm about to explain that to you. I think... 
We need to understand what eternal life isn't and what eternal life is. Hear me. Eternal life is not about time. It is about a kind. It is not about a time of life. It is about a kind of life. One that God gives us. Eternal life is about a life that is rooted, founded, and formed through your relationship of knowing God. In fact, Jesus says this in John 17, 3. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you. The word know means to experience, to submit to, if you dig deeper. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have So eternal life isn't about eternity as much as it's about a kind of life that can be given to you now if you would repent and trust Jesus. So parents, look at me if you're a parent, parents, if you're a friend of someone, if you're a brother to somebody, a sister to someone, nothing is more important than you knowing God and then introducing others to do the same. And that is what Paul is about to do in this courtroom facility, if you will. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Think about that for a second. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Those in this culture that Paul was speaking to believed, they did believe that something created all things, but they did not believe or understand that that creator could be known personally. So Paul is breaking it down. He is making it clear that this God isn't only knowable, but he is personal. That he is creative and he is very specific in his actions. And this God that Paul preaches is not one you could create in your own mind. That's one of my favorite things about God. This is not a God you could control. This is not a God you could handle. And this is not a God you have to feed. This is Yahweh, who is God. And he does not need us, but loves us and wants us to know him personally and intimately. And here's what we do. We project God the Father, or we project God, our human dad, onto God the Father. And for some of us, we haven't had a human dad that was very personal and very intimate. Wasn't someone we could connect with. And so we start to see God the Father that way, and we start to project, trust me, your heavenly daddy, no matter how good your earthly daddy was, significantly better. And so you can know our God intimately. He wants to know you. Verse 26. Paul's continuing to preach, and he says, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history, in history and the boundaries of their land. See, nothing is outside of God's control. God did this so that they would seek him, and perhaps, this is my favorite, reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. Do you know that our God, the one that we believe, the one that we read about in here, the one that we pray to, left enough breadcrumbs in history so we could know him through his creation and through our human intellect to understand that something didn't come from nothing, y'all. And God isn't just one to just be believed in, but he is one to be bowed down to. And if we want him, here is a truth that I hope every single person in this room understands. If we want him, 
We get him. Isn't that great news? But if we don't want him, if we're faking it, my, my generation, we're fretting and we're acting like we pretend we want him, but we don't really want him. We just go through the motions. If we don't really want him, God still gives us what our heart desires, which is not to have a relationship with him. So if we want him, we get him, but that requires us to act on our belief, to actually reach out to him. In fact, in Revelation chapter 3, written by the Apostle John, he writes down these words of Jesus, and he says this, Here I am, this is Jesus, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. For those of you who have trusted Jesus, do you remember that knock? Do you remember how God started to place people in your life and you didn't really understand why all these people around you all believed in this guy named Jesus? Did you understand that when you started to hear this idea that Christ gave you what you did not deserve in himself and he who knew no sin became sin so that you could have right standing before God and all of a sudden it clicked. All of a sudden it made sense. You know why? Because he stands at the door and knocks. So have you let him in? Have you opened that door and allowed him to come in and eat with you and and experience him? Often we have this expectation that God just isn't close to any of us because of things that we've done or things that we've done against him or relational sin where we've treated people poorly. And yet we have a gracious and merciful God that has, as soon as we are ready to turn to him, no matter how far we've ran from him, No matter how much we blasphemed his name, wanted nothing to do with him, told him, I don't believe in you. As soon as we turn around, he's right there to meet us. Hallelujah. As soon as we're willing to turn back, as soon as we're willing to turn and change direction, that word means repent. As soon as we're willing to trust and say, no longer my way, but Yahweh. No longer the way I do it, but I want to do it God's way. He meets us right where we are, but I don't care where you are theologically. I'm going to continue to preach this. God will not force himself on you. This is something that we have to be willing to receive. Verse 28. For in him, Paul is talking, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, We are his offspring. Paul decides to translate what he is saying to the audience in which he speaks. Don't miss that. Paul decides to translate what he is saying to the audience in which he speaks. As we've been doing this Wednesday night thing called Ecclesia, it's been so much fun for me because I get to be bilingual and there are only two languages I speak. You ready? Christianese and pagan. Those are the only two things I know how to speak. To be totally honest, I can't do Spanish, can't, I pick Latin, not even good at that. But Christianese, killing it. The blood of the lamb, you know, that kind of stuff. But then pagan, to try to explain these Christian ideals in a way that the audience will understand. So Paul quotes a 6th or a 5th century poet, a 5th century uh, uh, philosopher that I can't pronounce his name, so I'm not going to tell it to you. But he doesn't use words that they would have to Google. Do you guys get that? When he's speaking to them, he doesn't use all these seminary words that would make them go, wait, hold on, let me me ask Jeeves. No, what does he do? He speaks in a way that they can understand. 
He doesn't have to speak in such a way that his vocabulary shows that he has a degree and an education. Plus, he addresses the fact that even those that were Epicureans and Stoics, even those that had different philosophies, even their poets had talked about a creator. And how God is available to become their Lord and their master if they were willing to repent. That's what Paul added. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. I love this point that Paul makes, that God is not one that can be created, can be shaped or formed by human hands. He is not one that you or I could or would create. Do you believe that? Because if I were going to make up a God, he would probably be a little meaner like some other religions that have fake gods. And our God, the one of the Bible, the one that we believe in because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, his ways are not our ways. He is countercultural because our culture since the garden has been full of three things. It has been full of sin, self-reliance, and self-sufficiency ever since the garden. And our God comes and says, you can't do it on your own. I need to do it for you. Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to go to church. (laughs) No. (laughs) In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to change direction. To follow not your way, but Yahweh. I said that twice. That should be a takeaway for someone. And this statement that Paul makes during this proclamation of the good news has always struck me as something I don't know if you and I put enough stock in. You and I have been ignorant, okay? If you're new, sorry. You and I have been ignorant at some point, especially those of us prior to coming to Christ because no one gets born into the faith. We've been ignorant to Jesus' perfect life. We've been ignorant to Christ becoming sin for us. We've been ignorant to Christ dying on the cross for us and rising from the dead. And others and us often have been very ignorant to this cosmic and eternal truth. But if you've heard this truth, you must do something with it. You can either ignore it and allow it to harden your heart or you can believe it and actually put faith in it and allow your life to be changed by it. So Paul says repent, which is a word that I want to make sure you and I are not only familiar with, but experts in. Now, none of you draw on a big cardboard thing, repent, and stand on the street corner, all right? If you're doing that from this church, we're going to have words, all right? But I want you to understand what repentance means. I want you to understand that repentance, to give away your life, to change direction, to trust God, is the most important thing that will ever happen to you. Because if we're going to introduce others to Jesus and implore them to know the God through his one and only son, Jesus, we have to make sure that we understand that we've committed cosmic treason against this God. We have added to Jesus' death on the cross. We have sinned against a holy and perfect God, and because he is holy and perfect, he required a holy and perfect sacrifice, which ended up being God becoming the sacrifice for us through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And if you believe this, 
If you believe God at his word, you have the opportunity to show others what you believe, not just inwardly, but outwardly. In a few weeks, we're going to be offering baptisms. Baptisms are not so you can get saved. All right, I almost want you to repeat that back to me because I think so many people have missed it. Baptism does not save you. Let cults believe that. Baptisms are not so you can get saved. Baptisms are because you have repented and you want to show others your commitment to Jesus Christ. Too often we treat baptism as the finish line rather than the starting blocks of following Jesus. And when we make it the finish line, we start to be pretty apathetic because we think we've done everything we ought to do. In baptism, we are symbolizing our identity in Christ by going under the water, which represents our death to sin, and we come out of the water representing our new life being found in a resurrected king named Jesus. Verse 31, for he has set a date when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. I love that Paul didn't come up with some other reason. I'm so glad the proof wasn't because of how good we are. I'm so glad that the proof is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christians, we don't live urgently like we ought to. There will come a day that Jesus will come back. See, Revelation, the final book of the Bible, it doesn't assume that Jesus is coming back. It proclaims that Jesus is coming back. And he comes back and we ought to not just look busy. But we best be prepared. And being prepared has far more to do with applying the word of God to our lives and living for him rather than us than it does about being comfortable. See, I want air conditioning. I'm not going to hide that fact. I want air conditioning in this building. Sorry, Sarah. I really want air conditioning in this building. But if that means we're all going to get comfortable, then forget it. Let's sweat. Because we want to make sure that we're living our lives for Jesus. And God the Father ordained Jesus. He gave him the authority to judge the living and the dead. You know why? Because Jesus isn't just a son. Jesus isn't just a God. He is the Son, and he is the God. That is who Christ Jesus is. And here's the scary part. He knows our heart far better than we even know our own heart. Does it scare you a little that not only does God know what you do, but he knows the motive behind why you do it? That scares me a little bit. And God has proven this by raising Jesus from the dead. So I know you've heard this, but do you know that there is no more important answer, no more important fact, no more important reality than the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead? And unlike Lazarus, Jesus didn't go back to being dead. See, my God, he's as alive today as he was on the third day. And he's still moving, he's still working, he's even sent us his spirit, and it's no longer the steeple, it's the people that the Holy Spirit resides in. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. The resurrection sounds crazy, but that doesn't change the fact that the resurrection makes far more sense in history than any of the really stupid, ridiculous arguments that people have tried to come up with. 
People will sneer at this. They will scoff. They will maybe even think you're crazy, but it is so worth the blessing that comes from proclaiming God's truth to a world that doesn't know him. So no matter if you're at work or you're at school or you're talking with your neighbor, your waiter, your barista, or your colleague, you and I have the same commission, church, and responsibility to let others know that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher or a revolutionary leader, but he is the Lord God Almighty, and the proof was in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So you want to disagree with Jesus being God? Disprove the resurrection. Good luck with that. Let me know when you want to get baptized. So some will scoff when you share, but here's the great news. Some will scoff, but some will repent. Isn't that worth it? Two practical questions I want to leave you with. We're going to go all practical at the end of this message. Jordan, you want to grab that whiteboard for me? That'd be super helpful. Two practical questions I want you to learn. And it's not just about the questions, but it's when you ask them. Here's the first one. If you're having a dialogue with someone and it's starting to feel a little like you need to kind of turn on the the jets, if you will, and talk about Jesus, here's my favorite question to ask somebody. What do you believe I, as a Christian, believe? What do you believe I, as a Christian, believe? Thanks, buddy. That's perfect. What do you believe I, as a Christian, believe? Because you're going to hear some nonsense, if I'm honest. And you're going to hear these things about a God who isn't really the one true God. And you're going to hear things about moral uh, deism. You're going to hear things about how you have to try to be a better person. And so hopefully it's a dialogue and they ask you if that's correct. Here's the second thing. What is stopping you from following Jesus? What is stopping you from following Jesus? Why don't we ask people this? Because we're afraid that they may say nothing and then we won't know what to do. What is stopping you from following Jesus? So asking these questions in a conversation will make the main thing the main thing. Rather than trying to convert people to a set of beliefs and introduce them to the person and work of Jesus Christ and explain how they can make the Lord and Master Jesus your God. See, I believe God's still at work today. Don't you? Think he's still moving, not in a mystical sense, but actually through his people. And he can and will use people like you and I. So where do we share? Wherever we are, there we are to serve Jesus. So be intentional. Pay attention to those God has entrusted to you relationally. Write that down. Pay attention to those that God has entrusted you relationally. So here's what I want you to do. You've probably already written on this, but in your bulletin, Karen, thank you so much. At the very bottom of the bulletin, there's a bunch of space. You may have to write over some of your notes. Tough. What I want you to do is I want you to just see an exercise that I learned from a missionary in Africa. And the thing is that we all have an oikos. We all have an extended household. We all have people in our lives that we come in contact with all the time. And as Mike said last week, I'm not going to be the one to talk to them for you. God's put you in a relationship with them on purpose for a purpose. So here's what I want you to do. In your bulletin, at the bottom, there should be a pen in front of you. I want you to draw a picture, just a circle, not too huge, but but some of this so you can actually put things outside of the circle. And so I'm going to draw it big. Don't draw it this big because you'd write on your hands, but... In this, this is you, or this is your oikos, which is Greek for extended household. 
Oikos, O-I-K-O-S. And I want you to now think about the things that you do in a common week. I want you to think about the places that you go, the places that maybe you reach out to, the places that you frequent pretty often, or maybe you stay home and you just come to church. Guess what? Church is part of that. So I want you to start putting this, these lines, and I want you to start thinking about, well, I, I go to, I'll just do mine. You don't have to do mine, but I go to a coffee shop. I go to work. I go to, don't make this the full page because you're going to have to write outside of these as well. I go to kids' school. I go to, huh, where else do I go? I go on my bike ride every, every, almost every day, bike ride. Where else do I go? I go, uh, I'm forgetting that I do stuff. What else do I do? I go to the movies. I hang out at home. Okay, here's my point. There are things that we go do throughout the week. And here's what we want you to do. Coffee, if this is one of yours. I want you to think of any of these things that you do. Coffee, you know who I care about at Pete's? Daniel. He told me this morning, hey, I'm going to come to your church one of these Sundays that I'm not, I'm not working. I'm like, praise God, I'll talk to your manager, all right? And so coffee. So next to coffee, I would put Daniel because I care about Daniel. When I'm at kids' school, there's, there's some parents. I actually don't know his name yet, so guess what I need to learn this week? His name, but I, we'll call him Raphael. That's actually what I think it is. And so Raphael's on my mind. There's a bunch of guys that want to go bike riding with me. So I can just put, okay, Malcolm wants to go bike riding. You know, all these other people want to go bike riding with me. But I can start to do it. Do, do you all get the point or am I teaching Greek? Okay, good. That's helpful, John. Thank you. So here's the thing. Now you know who to pray for. Now you know who's going to be on your mind. Now you know who to think about, who God has put in your extended household to actually be an image bearer to, to be an encouragement for, to pray for, and to maybe, just maybe, engage with about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that this message would not come back void. I pray that we as a people would be a people that truly care about the fact that there are people in our lives that need you and that some of them are willing to follow you. They just need to be introduced to you. And so God, use this time as we respond in communion as an opportunity to bless your name. Use this time as an opportunity for offering to bless your name, but may we have the people in this world that you've put for us to rub shoulders with. Would you put them in the forefront of our minds, not just when we're in church, but all day, every day, that we would pray for and engage with. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God didn't give us an idea. And he didn't give us a disembodied message. He gave us a person who we could know a friend that we can introduce our friends to. And we're going we're gonna to commemorate our friendship with Jesus Christ this morning. We're also going to take an offering. And as we remember what he gave for us and what we received there, 
then we look as well to see what we give to the gathering for his work among us. Tim always talks about God with skin. And picture Jesus and his disciples, they go to the city and they've got a room and they're observing Passover. What happens at Passover? Well, we remember. What do we remember? That the angel of death passed through Egypt and there was blood painted on the doorways of those who followed God's instructions to do so. He said, death is coming, but I'm going to make a way. So they were remembering the past. And they, they lay on couches with their heads at the table, so their heads are close to one another. And Jesus the king isn't a distant king. He's one that we get to recline at table with, and our heads get to be close to his head. And I'm going to read just a couple of verses from Matthew's account of this happening. And I want you to think as well about what Jesus said about the future. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. He took bread. He gave thanks. Thank you, God, for your provision. And he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup. And he said, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And in this one observation, we mix the distant past and the present of our relationship with Christ and the anticipation of seeing him face to face as they did, but in all his glory. So if you are a follower of Christ, if you've given your life to him, come and partake. And I'm not quite sure why, but I'm going to stand over there, and if, if you have a concern that you want me to pray for, I will do that. But Flora and Katie, could you come up? And Linda, could you come up as well? These are three of our deacons, and they're going to serve God, we thank you for what you did by sending your son, and we celebrate with you all you've done in the past, all you are to us in the present, and our hope for seeing you face to face in time to come. Amen.